Good evening. That's turned out pretty good. I forgot to put on the lapel mic tonight, so we're going to try it with this one. begin with a prayer in just a few moments, but I have a couple of announcements I've been asked to make uh, before that. I want to uh, continue to remember Sister Tanya Allen. If you, I think most of you know she was in the hospital yesterday and uh, with some heart rhythm issues and she uh, went through a procedure today that uh, went well. I'm told that she is home now, but let's continue to remember Tanya. Also, Pat Bledsoe continues to have health problems. I've been told uh, Ben Green is in Stonecrest Hospital this evening with what appears to be a, a kidney stone. So let's continue to remember Ben and his family. Uh, Sister Martha and, and Danny Hutton have a neighbor that they tell us is uh, currently in the hospital with leukemia. Her name is Pat P, P-E-A-Y and uh, she has requested our prayers as well. So let's, as we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer, when you're at home or and here as well, let's, let's remember these. Also, uh, Jonathan and Rachel Reeves continue to be in Arizona as they went out to uh, adapt, adopt a newborn child. I'm told that they have a, a meeting scheduled for tomorrow that's very critical in this process and they've asked for our prayers in regard to that as well, that all would go well with them. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful unto you for every blessing. We know that every good thing comes from you, that you've blessed us far more bountifully than we would even know how to ask. We pray for wisdom as we use these blessings, that we may use them according to your will and to use them to do all the good that we can and do no harm at all. Please forgive us, we pray, of any sin that we've committed. We pray for clean and pure hearts. We would grow closer to you day by day, be more pleasing to you, and be more like you as days go by. Father, we are mindful of all of these that we've just mentioned who are sick, ask your richest blessings upon them that they may be healed and be well and home again, if it be your will. Pray for the Reeves as they are still away from us, that you would be with them, keep them safe, and we pray that the adoption process would go well and that they may soon be home with, with their new child. So thankful for this opportunity to gather and to study from our Bibles. We pray, Father, that you would be with us, help us to have open and receptive hearts with a genuine desire to use what we learn in our lives to serve you each and every day. Thankful for every member of this congregation for the work that is done by each one. We pray that you would guide us in your right ways each and every day, that your church would grow and prosper, that we would take ever advantage of every opportunity to teach the gospel to others and to edify one another. Please be with us now through this Bible study and throughout our lives. We pray that when our time upon this earth is ended, that we may have that home with you in heaven with all the redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, if you would get your Bibles turned to Ezra chapter 5. You remember, we finished chapter 4 last week. Uh, the uh, remnant who had returned to Jerusalem and to Judah had, uh, in their second year, which would be 535 B.C., began to, they laid the foundation of the temple and began to rebuild it. If you recall, back in chapter 1, that was really one of the primary uh, purposes of them returning from captivity was to rebuild the temple so that the law could be kept as written once again. And so now they've begun to do that. They laid the foundations and they were joyful. That they, were, they were so happy. But then their neighbors began to uh, cause problems with their enemies and they became discouraged don't know exactly how long it took this to happen, but they quit work altogether on rebuilding the temple. And so as we begin Ezra chapter 5, <clears throat> we're at 520 B.C., so this is about 15 years after they had laid the foundation of the temple and no further work had been done for quite some time now. So beginning with... Uh, Ezra chapter 5 verse 1 it says when the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the, the uh, God of Israel who was over them then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and, and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them and supported them uh, we'll look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 shortly, but you see uh, Haggai actually gives us the time. He tells us that that was in the second year of Darius. His first year was 521, for beginning of his rule, and so that's how can we know, that's how we know that this is about 520 B.C. at this point. And so they've been uh, back in Jerusalem then about 16 years and still the uh, temple has not been rebuilt. So now uh, Haggai and Zechariah have prophesied and they've, they've begun the work again. They've resumed the work of building the temple. Verse 3, at that time Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and some of his colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure. And well, uh, in, in Haggai 1 in verse 1, it calls Zerubbabel the governor. And here in verse 3 of Ezra 5, it calls Tatanai the governor. Of course, the reason that is, they were both governors. Tatanai was the governor of the uh, province beyond the river. And then uh, Zerubbabel was governor of, of Judah. It would be similar to <clears throat> the state of Tennessee has a governor, Governor Lee. And then Rutherford County, which is a part of the state of Tennessee, what we have, we call it a county mayor, I believe it is. And that would, of course, sort of correspond to this Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Zerubbabel being uh, the, the governor of the province within that of, of Judah. And so this, uh, this governor had come to them, and, and of course his job is to keep things going according to, to the king's will. And he sees this new work going on, and so he wanted to know, where did you get authority to do this? Which was 
perfectly right for him to do, wasn't it? It was within his authority. And uh, look at verse 5. It says, But the eye of God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius uh, and then be written a reply, uh, be returned concerning it. So this fellow seemed to be a pretty fair-minded person, and he evidently didn't have any personal animosities toward the Jews. And so what he decided to do then was to take what they would tell him that, uh, where that they got their authority, and he would write to the king and find out if this was true. But in the meantime, he let them go ahead and work on the temple. He didn't stop it at that point in time. So the rest of the chapter is, a, is, a, is the letter that he wrote to Darius the king. Let's look down to, skip down about verse, <clears throat> verse 8. So this is the letter to Darius. He says, let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones, and beams are being laid in the walls, and this work is going on with great care, and is succeeding in their hands. <clears throat> then we asked those elders, and said to them, who issued you a decree to rebuild the temple and to finish this structure? Verse 10, it says, uh, we asked their names. And verse 11 starts their, their reply. And really, they, they actually gave him a little more than even than he asked for. They, they gave him a little history. And they said, we're servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many year ago, years ago with the great king of Israel, which the great king of Israel built and finished. Of course, that would have been Solomon. But because our fathers had provoked the God of, uh, of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, remember what happened. And then 586 B.C., then the temple was destroyed and, and the remainder of the people were taken into captivity. But then he skips ahead in time, verse 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, he, notice here he calls him the king of Babylon. Of course, he was the king of all of Persia, which would include Babylon, would, be a, would have been a province of the Persian Empire at this time. And so there, the Jews was, was probably... Was, Zerubbabel talking to the to the governor here. And he said, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, he issued this decree to rebuild the house. And then in verse 14, also take the utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the original temple and take those back and put them in the temple once again. And it says there that he had uh, appointed this Shishbazar as to be the governor. Of course, we saw last week that this is probably the same as Zerubbabel. That would have been the Chaldean name. Uh, and Zerubbabel would be the, the Hebrew name for the same man. Verse 16, Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction. And it is not yet completed. And so if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, and if it be that a decree was issued by, by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem, let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. So they're starting the rebuilding, but they're having to uh, provide some authority, and uh, Tatanai, the governor, is doing just what he should do. If they say there was authority, then let's, let's find it. 
us verify what they're saying. A couple of verses in this chapter that kind of stand out to me, and the first one is verse 5, which says, The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they, that is, the governor, did not stop them until the reports had come back from Darius. So we've been seeing and talking about this ever since the introduction back a few weeks ago, that we're going to see God's hand in everything that happens. These things didn't happen by accident. These things are part of part of God's plan, and it still is. The second verse that really stands out to me is verse 8. And I won't read it all again, but just look, look at the uh, latter part of the verse. It says, This work is going on with great care and is succeeding. What that tells me that once... Haggai and Zechariah had talked with these folks and kind of lit a fire under them. They realized what they needed to be doing, and they were doing it with great care, and they were all working together. I suppose if you had been able to watch what they were doing, what you would see is there would be very skilled stonemasons, you know, cutting the stones just precisely and making sure they were laid in place and vertical and square and all those kinds of things, and the carpenters working with the wood and being very careful with that, but you know, you would also see what you might call just common laborers, just helping move things around and bringing tools. Perhaps you would see people bringing water and food for the workers to, to, for nourishment. Things. So it was people with all kind of different skill levels using their abilities and working together with a common goal, and they were succeeding. They were succeeding because... Everybody was working toward the same goal. And you know that works in the church today too, doesn't it? We're working toward the same goal. And we all have a part to do in the kingdom, right? Uh, We have different abilities and maybe a different amount of time to apply to it. But we all have a part to play. It's all important. I think uh, Brother David referred to this passage a week or so ago in one of his sermons. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Skip down to about verse 15. It says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole congregation here, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. See, you're important. I don't know what your talents and abilities are, but in this congregation, there's work for you to do. And God says it's important. It's being held together by what every joint supply. It doesn't matter if you're the oldest member of this congregation or the youngest. It doesn't matter. This is held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And so when we all work together, every one of us doing what we can, what is the result? It causes the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love, and we accomplish the work that God intended. Paul talked about that again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verses 14 through 22. And I just want to point out, I won't read all of this for time's sake, but just part of these verses. Verse 14 says, The body is not one member but many. 
So there, there's no way just one of us here, no matter how talented you are, can do the work that God wants this church to do. It takes all of us. Skip down to verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. You see, this church is made up of people of different ages and different abilities and all those kinds of things. You know why? It's because that's the way God wants it. That's the way He's planned it. That's the way He knows that it'll work and it'll accomplish what He wants it to do. Skip down to verse 21. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I can't say, to, I, I, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I don't know what your full talents are. If you're the one talent person, the two talent, or the five, I don't know. But I do know this. I can say assuredly that I know this church needs you. I can't say, I can't say we don't need you. We do. We need you to be using your talents in the work of the church. And finally, he says, the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. See that? Do we have a one talent person here? You're necessary. You are just as much as David and Leland and Gerald and Danny and everybody else. You are necessary in the work of the church if it's going to be successful as God intended it and as they were building the, the temple back there thousands of years ago. I've put a name up on the screen. And guys, this fellow's name is Onesiphorus. You know who he is? You know who this fellow is? He's one of my uh, Bible heroes. I really like this guy. Uh, Apostle Paul, when he was in prison and just about to be executed, he knew he was right at the end of his life. If you were in that circumstance, think, what would you be thinking about? What would be on your mind? I'll tell you one thing that was on Paul's mind, and it was this fellow right here. Onesiphorus. You know why he was on Paul's mind? It was because to Paul, this was an important, important man. And in 2 Timothy 1, verses 16 through 18, he tells us why. He says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched me out and found me. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well the services he rendered at Ephesus. He didn't mean a lot to the Apostle Paul on his Ephesus, did because he was another apostle. It wasn't because he was a famous prophet or a famous statesman or a general marshalling armies and conquering nations. That wasn't why on his Ephesus was important to Paul and one of the last persons that ever was on his mind. And a person that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record for all time in the Bible for us to learn from. What Onesiphorus was, was what the world might call an ordinary, everyday Christian. I don't know if I agree with that, ordinary, everyday. But anyway, you, you understand what we mean by that. He was, a, he was a fellow that had what the world would say not very many great talents as far as we know. But what Onesiphorus did was he did what he could. What talents he had, he used it. And we can see that it was important. And so 
you're important too, and you're important to the work of the church. And this congregation can be successful in its work if you and I join in and use our talents in the work as we're capable of doing. We can be successful too. You're needed and I'm needed. We're all needed in the work. Ezra chapter 6. So Darius gets the letter from Tatanai, the governor. And so he searches the, uh, the storehouses, the archives, if you will, in Babylon. Didn't find anything there. So he, he searched in uh, Ekbatana. I, I understand that this is the uh, summer residence of the king. And there the scroll was found. And sure enough, he found that Cyrus had issued this decree there in verse 3 concerning the building of the house of God, and it was to be paid for from the royal treasury, verse 4. Verse 5, they were to take all the utensils Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the, from the temple and return it. And so verse, verse 6, he says, stay away from there, don't bother them. Verse 7, leave this work of the house of God alone. And he, he also issued his own decree in verse 8. And he says, Tatanai, whatever the taxes that you gather, I want you to use whatever is necessary to help these people build this temple. And in verse 9, he went on to say, and also provide animals for sacrifices as well. And he asked for their prayers in doing so. And so down in verse 12, I dare is issue this decree. In verse 14, the elders of the Jews were successful in building uh, through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So kind of interesting there at the end of verse 14, he, he said they finished building it at the decree of Cyrus. Okay, we know about that one. Our first is at the command of God. That's important. That's the first thing. They're building according to the command of the God of Israel. That's why they were doing this. It was God's commandment. But then there was the decree of Cyrus that helped. There was the decree of Darius that helped. And then he says Artaxerxes. Well, Artaxerxes is still, what, 50, 60, 70 years in the future. Why did he put Artaxerxes in there? Oh, you're going to have to come back when we're studying Nehemiah and you'll find out when we, or, I'm sorry, we'll find out in Ezra chapter 7 why he put Artaxerxes in there, okay? Ezra chapter 7, Lord willing, next week. And so it was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius that they completed this, so that means it took them about four years now. You know, they put it off for 15 years, and when they finally got everybody working, then they finished it in just four years. And then verse 18, they got the priest and divided them up in divisions, everything according to the law of Moses. And verses 19 through 22, they began, they observed the Passover. And verse 22, let's read that. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. You see God's hand in it again, right? He had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them and, and encouraged them to the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So God is working all along with these people and now they've completed the, the work on the temple and so now it's 516 B.C. Exactly 70 years since the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. That would be the temple that Solomon had built. 
So now turn your Bibles over to Haggai. And we're going to rewind and go back to 520 B.C. We're going to rewind four years, okay? So we read there in chapter 5 that it was the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah that got these, the remnant of the Jews busy uh, in their Zoom building the temple. So what did they say then that, uh, that got this thing going again? Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, saying, This people says the time has not come, even, even the time for the house of the Lord to be built. So one thing here that uh, at least for a while, was discouraging. Why were they not building these 15 years? Why had they they'd become discouraged? And one of the reasons was the shepherds didn't do their job. Zerubbabel and uh, the high priest weren't doing their job. That brings something back, you know, it's like, what did Yogi say? Deja vu all over again, wasn't, wasn't that what happened? Wasn't that the reason they were in Babylonian captivity in the first place? One of the reasons was the priests and the king at that time weren't shepherding the flock like they should. Put up a couple of verses here to remember from the book of Ezekiel. There in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 8, he says, Surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has been even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. God had provided the shepherds. They just weren't doing the job. Ezekiel 22 and verse 26, it says, They, that is the, the priest, have not taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. They hadn't taught the people. like That was their job. Part of their job was to teach the law to the people. And they hadn't done it. And so we, we know the result of that. Eventually they were in Babylonian captivity. So it's no surprise then, as Apostle Paul talking to the elders of the church uh, at Ephesus, there in Acts 20 and verse 28, he said, Take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's almost like he's saying, if, there's, if I can only tell you one thing, only one piece of advice, this is it. You need to feed the flock. You need to teach them the gospel and teach them the gospel and teach them the gospel. And that's why we have Bible studies like this. It's why David and and Leland uh, speak to us from the Bible on Sundays. We need a constant diet of the gospel so that we don't fall into these snares like the Israelites did back, back in, in the day. So Zerubbabel and Joshua hadn't been doing their job, and they've been 15 years now. They've quit working on the temple and so on. Haggai and Zechariah come along and he, and he says, the people, and I assume this would include Zerubbabel and Joshua, were saying, you know, it's not time yet to build the house of the Lord. It's not time for it to be re rebuilt. In verse 4, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies desolate? He says, just think about it. Does this really make sense? Sixteen years now you've been back here and you were sent here to rebuild the Lord's house. And you built your own, you've got your own paneled houses, but the Lord's house 
lies desolate. Does that make any sense at all? Verse 5, consider your ways. Then he calls some things to their attention. Maybe they hadn't collected the dots here. Look at verse 6. You have sown much but harvested little. You eat but, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink and there's not enough to become drunk. I like the way the English standard words that a little bit better. It says you never have your fill. You drink but you never have your fill. It's not talking about getting intoxicated. It's just talking about having your fill. You put on clothing it's not warm enough. You're in wages and you got holes in your pockets. You can't buy much with it. Consider your ways. Have you ever thought about why those things are true? He's telling them you need to think about that a little bit. Verse 8, what you need to do is go up in the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple. You need to do what I told you to do in the first place, in other words. That I may be pleased there in verse 8, this is God speaking, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. How do you glorify God? What we're going to see in the next few verses. It's still true today, just like it was then. Verse 9, again, he talks about all the difficulties they were having and why. He says, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to your own house. That's why. Verse 11, there's drought in the land. Your labor of your hands comes to nothing. And so then verse 12, things begin to look up. So then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the high priest and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people showed reverence to the Lord. So how do you show reverence to the Lord? Well, they showed us right there in verse 12 by obeying him. That's, that's the only way you can do that, right? They Actually, some of these same people are probably their descendants had the same problem a little bit later when, when Micah was prophesying. And uh, they weren't keeping the law, but they were offering the sacrifices. But God wasn't accepting the sacrifices. They're going, well, why won't you accept my sacrifice? Maybe I need more sacrifices and more sacrifices. And no, that's not the problem. In Micah 6 and verse 8, what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He expects you to keep his commandments. That's the way you show reverence to God, is to keep his commandments. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, he tells them, your earthly possessions don't impress me, but here's one thing that will, verse, the latter part of verse 2, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, the whole duty of man is to fear God and, and keep his commandments. I've always liked 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. It says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So how do you treat God as holy? How do you revere him? How do you show him glory and you do that by keeping his commandments and when we don't keep his commandments then he's not going to be happy with it just like he wasn't happy with them not building the temple as he had commanded so verse 13 so they had they had obeyed the Lord and began to rebuild the temple they resumed the rebuilding it says then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying 
I am with you, declares the Lord. It says, then, notice that verse starts with then, after they had started to work again and obeying the Lord, then he says, I am with you. Reminds me of 2 John in verse 9. It says, anyone who does not, who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If you don't abide in the teaching, he says, you don't have God. But the one who abides in the, abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the and the son. So see, that hasn't changed since the days of Ezra. And it was the same, exactly like it was back then as well. So, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua and the spirit of the people and the remnant of the people that came and worked on the house of the Lord. And it was the 24th day of the sixth month, apparently, that they began this work. Now, I don't know why it took them nearly a month to do that. It doesn't cover those few days because it it was the first day of the sixth month when God first spoke to Haggai. But anyway, here it is, the 24th day, and things are going well now. They're working on the temple. Chapter 2, the word of support here. This is the 21st day of the seventh month, so we're about a month or so after they began resume the work. And uh, I won't read this because we're going to run short of time, but basically God is saying to them, look at Look at what you're building, and those of you old enough remember what Solomon's temple looked like. What you're building today doesn't hold up to it very well. All the gold and everything, and what you're building may look pretty plain and unimpressive compared to Solomon's temple. And that could be discouraging, but he's saying, don't let that discourage you, because that is not what counts. Look at verse 4. He says, Now take courage, all you people, and work, for I am with you. He said, That's what matters. What it looks like compared to Solomon's temple doesn't matter. But the fact that you're doing what I told you to do, you're keeping my commandments, you're showing rivers to me, and you just work, and I'm going to be with you. And then verse 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, he talked about the promise that he made when he came out of Egypt. And basically that was, you keep my commandments and I'll be with you. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. Verse 7, I will shake the nations they will come, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. I will fill this house with glory. Verse 9, and the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. He says, in the end, and this is, of course, prophetic I believe, of the kingdom and the church ultimately be, be delivered to heaven and be in God's presence. You know, the, the temple represented God's presence with it. But the day's going to come and the kingdom is going to actually be in his presence. And he says, the latter glory will be uh, greater than the former. He says, even Solomon's temple is not going to compare to that. So don't you be discouraged. You just keep working and I'm going to be with you. Then there's a word of explanation. The next few verses, basically, he's, he's asking them, is it possible to transfer holiness by just casual contact? If here's a person coming along who is, is uh, holy and accidentally touches something else, does it make that holy too? Well, we know that it doesn't do that. If you just think about Belshazzar, the, the Babylonian king, had the holy vessels from the temple, right? Getting drunk, drinking wine out of them. Didn't make him holy, did it? 
So we know the answer to that is no. And so he said, well then what about something that's unclean? Can casual contact with something unclean transfer the uncleanness to something else? The answer was, yeah, yeah it could. So, you know, if you were approaching God to worship him in those days, there was a ceremonial washing that you had to do to be ceremonially clean. Well, if you touched a dead body is one thing that could make you unclean. So yes, you could transfer the uncleanness. And the point is, he's, he's making here, is this is what has been happening to you. So you haven't been keeping my commandments, but at the same time, you've been offering these sacrifices to me, and I haven't been accepting them because your sacrifices were unclean, because your life was unclean. But now, he says, it's going to be different. Look at verse 15. Consider from this day onward. Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward. This is the 24th day of the ninth month. So this is what, uh, about three months or so after they began uh, building the temple. And uh, in look at verse 19. At the end of that verse, he says, Yet from this day on I will bless you. So he explained why he had not blessed them before because of their sin, but now that you're obeying my voice, I'm going to bless you. And so he closes, he closes this prophecy talking to Zerubbabel. And this was again on this was the second time this same month on the 24th day that God spoke through uh, Haggai. Speaking to the Zerubbabel, verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms and destroy the power of the kings of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses, and their riders will go down every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will make you Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's using... Zerubbabel kind of as a shadow of something to come. Of course, we already looked, we've already seen that Jesus, when he came to this earth, was a descendant of through Zerubbabel. And so he's using Zerubbabel to kind of uh, foreshadow that. And he said, you will be my signet ring. As I understand that in those days, the, the king or somebody in authority would have this signet ring. And if, if they issued a decree, then they would... They would press the imprint of that ring on that document and show that, it, and it would transfer their authority to that document. Now that document had the authority of the king because he used his signet ring to indicate that. And uh, this descendant of Zerubbabel would, would be the authority in time. Remember Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So those were the words that Haggai had to say to the Jews. And you see it went on through a period of months. It wasn't just one prophecy and then he left them. But he stayed there and God continued to encourage them through the words of Haggai as the building went on. And it was successful. Of course, Zechariah prophesied at the same time. Actually, it was started a couple of months after Haggai did. And his first admonishment was a call to repentance. He said, remember your forefathers, God sent prophets to them too, and they didn't listen. And you know what happened to them. And so don't you do the same things. And so that's 
Ezra chapters 5 and 6 and quickly Haggai and the words of, uh, that he spoke that finally got their attention and to their credit, after being all this discouragement to their credit, this time they weren't like their forefathers. They listened to the word of God. They listened to the prophets and the, and the prophecies had the desired effect and they repented and they obeyed the word of God. Lord willing, next week we'll look at Ezra chapters 7, 8, and 9 and conclude the, uh, the book of, of Ezra. Again, thank you for coming. We have, of course, you here in the auditorium. We have some outside in the cars listening via the FM radio and some possibly at home listening to the live stream. We appreciate uh, your interest in studying the Bible that can teach us of God and teach of the gospel that's uh, God's power to save. Thank you again for coming this evening. Yeah, we, we, we learn at an early age that it, generally speaking it's good to gain the approval of those who have authority over us. Even a little child finds out pretty quickly that if their behavior is approved by their parents, life goes a lot better. You don't have to eat off the mantle and things like that. Uh, later on, if you're in school, you, if, you, if your teacher approves of your behavior, that usually works out pretty well for you. Or if you've got a job and your boss approves of your behavior, then that works pretty good. Maybe you'll get that raise or maybe even a promotion works a lot better than if you don't have his approval. But it's far more important than any of those that we gain uh, God's approval. Uh, the Apostle Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He doesn't use the word approval there, but you'll see the thought is there. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, he said, Therefore, he had been talking about being at home with the Lord, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be pleasing to him who is at the Lord. It's our ambition to be pleasing to him, in other words, to, to gain his approval. Well, why do you want to do that? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Anybody that's ever stood before a judge will tell you it works out a lot better if the, if the judge approves of your behavior. It doesn't work out so well otherwise, does it? And that's kind of what the apostle is talking about here, speaking about the Lord's approval. Well, that's all well and good, but, but how do you do that? How do you gain God's approval? Well, the Bible tells us, look at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. You're probably familiar with it. The uh, old King James has studied to show yourself to prove to God. The newer version says, be diligent. This is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handling the word of truth. So if you're going to be approved of God, the first thing it takes is you're going to have to learn to handle the word of God accurately. And so you can see why the older translations say study, because that's going to take some study. People, people can teach you but you're going to have to study as well and learn how to handle that word 
accurately if you want to be approved of God. But there's more to it than that. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. And so then he gives us example after example after example. There was Abel, there was Noah, there was Abraham, there was Moses, that through faith gained God's approval. So how did they do that by faith? What we see then is every one of them, every, every example was when God told them to do something by faith, they did what God said to do. When God told Abel to offer a specific sacrifice, he didn't substitute, he, ordered, he offered the one that God told him to. Noah built the ark just like God told him to do. Abraham got up and went when God said, got up, get up and go, and so on, on you go. And so if we want to gain God's approval, not only are we going to have to learn and study the Word of God to gain it, but we're going to have to, when we've learned it, we're going to have to do what He tells us to do if we're going to have His approval. One more verse is in James chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, You've studied and been taught and you know how to rightly divide or handle accurately the word of truth. And you've obeyed the gospel and you're keeping God's commandments. Then you've got to persevere. You can't quit in the middle of the race. You have to be like the Apostle Paul when he said, I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. And so if we want to have God's approval, we need to finish the course could be someone here tonight who's never obeyed the gospel. You can change that before another hour is gone. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess your faith before man, be buried with Him in baptism, the blood of Christ will cleanse you from every sin and that will put you on that straight and narrow, that straight and difficult path that leads to life and you persevere work with the saints be faithful and as uh, John wrote in, in uh, Revelation 2 and verse 10 be thou faithful in the dead and I'll give thee a crown of life if you're a Christian and you let sin creep back into your life God is faithful and just to forgive whatever your spiritual need may be we invite you to come tonight while we stand, while we stand.